Hi, I'm Ellen Dupuis, KSFR2. The following show was recorded live on March 12, 2012 at the Opposite Bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico with your host, Jane Toganaga. Here am I, begging for only five minutes more. Five minutes more. Welcome, one and all, to Nichols Stories at the Opposite Bookstore. Yay, Opposite! (laughs) We want to thank Nemi and uh, Sierra for hosting us every month. We got started, as I said, about a year ago. The idea was to offer a venue for writers in Santa Fe for prose, fiction, memoir. We love poetry, but there's lots of poetry venues. So this is this is our space. And so without further ado, I'll just go over the rules so you know for those newcomers who we are so glad to have and our longtime readers who we're always glad to have read for us. Uh, the limit is five minutes. Someone in this audience has a beeper. We won't tell you who. And when you hit the five minutes, the beeper's going to go off. Five So we wish you well, but try to keep it under five or we're going to cut you off. We also ask if you want to spend about a minute just telling us before you read, either about the story or about what you're doing as a writer, anything like that, please do, because that's part of building this community so that we all connect in this process. So our first reader tonight is going to be Liz Rose. Liz, where are you? And Liz is reading... Booby Trap. Well, I'm Liz, and I've been writing about uh, three and a half years. Booby Trap. Jim checked his log cabin in the Pecos wilderness. Yes, everything was in its place. The wood stove emptied of ash, the taps run dry, and every mouse and bear attracting crumb bagged and buried across the meadow by the dead Douglas pine on the edge of his land. From that very spot in front of the sink, he'd witnessed the tree's life struck from its limbs in a blinding instant four summers back. He'd left its leafless silvery-grey skeleton standing, an icon to the suddenness of death by his way of thinking. He liked that it was now home to a pygmy owl and ears of yellow fungus. He drew the gingham curtains along the length of twine that served as a rail. Damn, blast it! Jim thumped his fist onto the paint-chipped kitchen table. I'll show you, sons of bitches! Mr Pepper, his blue heeler, sat up, cocked an ear inquiringly at Jim. Jim spent his summers up in his grandfather's cabin in the woods, Mr Pepper and him. It wasn't till 1964, when Jim was still a lad, that the government declared the land a designated wilderness and city folk arrived in droves and drove the wildness out. Civilised it, cut trails and campsites, and led folks on mules to see the place, Grandpa grumbled. Game was plentiful back then, elk, all kinds of deer, bighorn sheep, turkey and grouse. What with trout to catch, chanterelle and bolitas together, and growing beans and corn, when he was growing up they never went hungry. Grandpa stayed on with us after Grandma Isabella was gone. Four of us squeezed tight, Ma and Pa's bed in the far corner, Grandpa and me cosy, head to tail, counting one another's toes. 
Jim saw himself knee-high, standing before his grandpa's rocking chair on the wooden porch while he recounted stories of his past and smelled again the acrid backy smoke linger in his nostrils from the pipe grandpa had whittled with his own hands. After Jim's dad died, he was alone. His ma's face had long since faded. In their time, both he and his dad had brought a woman to the cabin. Both their women had left. Better off, they'd half-heartedly consoled themselves. Enough of reminiscing, Mr. P. Time to get to business. Jim fetched the broom and swept the last cloud of dust out through the open door and pulled it shut, turned the key and put it in his backpack. Every year before the first snows fell, Jim abandoned his cabin for the winter and left it locked and clean, ready for the next summer. Maybe a bachelor, but I like a thing in its place. Jim glanced at the sepia photo of his grandpa and grandma on their wedding day. They stood sentinel and unsmiling in their unaccustomed best, her arm bent stiff through his. The two of them had set up home right there in the cabin where Jim now stood. Despite their glaring from the wall, vandals had broken in for each one of the past six years, forced the lock and mussed up the place, leaving open cans and dirty plates strewn on the table, in the sink, even on the floor. Jim's face reddened with the ugly memory. He reached for his grandpa's relic of a shotgun, dropped a cartridge down the barrel, snapped it shut and strapped it firmly to a chair back with a stock propped on the table. Bending down, he sighted it, pointing at the door. Unrolling a ball of string, he looped one end to the old-fashioned iron door latch, tying the other to the trigger. Try breaking in now, you buggers! He smiled, carefully releasing the safety catch. What you think, Grandpa? Jim addressed the photo on the wall. With one last look at his handiwork, he dropped his pack and then himself out of the window above his cot. Once on the ground, he nailed the window shut, pulled on his wide-brimmed hat, slung his pack, and crooked his shotgun over his arm. Let's hit the road, Mr. Pepper, he whistled. Come! And together, companionable, the two of them headed down the mountain track to winter in the town of Las Vegas. Next spring, when the sun was warm, as was his habit, Jim and Mr. Pepper retraced their steps to spend the summer in the cabin. The day was glorious, the birds nesting and the mountain iris pushing through the earth. As he walked, he busied his head with plans. Extend the clearing, fence a patch against the mule deer, maybe plant some corn. He was happy. We're home, Mr. Pepper. He put the key in the lock and pushed. Boom! Shot. Jim screamed and fell. Thank you, Liz. That was booby trap. Our next reader is Jill Schwartz, uh, the Bates Motel. Oh, is this right? The Bates Motel of Switzerland? Okay. <laughs> Having gone all the way from New York City to Florence, Italy to be mugged, my friend Cindy and I decided to lamb it out on the midnight train to the safer, more wholesome environs of Switzerland. The funny thing about Switzerland is that it looks like Switzerland. The magnificent Alps, the storybook buildings, and all those clean Swiss that had probably been taught to yodel in the cradle. In the, in the cradle. <laughs> Cindy and I <laughs> perused our Europe on the cheap guide and decided that Interlaken was the perfect place to start. We found a charming little storybook hotel halfway up the mountain that gave us 
easy access to the glacier above us and the huge lake below. We took a deep breath of joy. We were in a beautiful place with the angst of Italy behind us. One of the first things we did was to take a hike through the pine-covered trails that led up to the glacier. I was in my early 30s then, in pretty good shape, but we were both huffing and puffing up the steep trail. The worst part was seeing old Swiss grandmothers leaving us in the dust going up the mountain. Healthy and wholesome to the end, I guess. Of course, the glacier was breathtaking with what little breath we had left. We had really come to the perfect place. On our way down the trail, there was a little storybook inn. The Swiss were drinking their beer, laughing, toasting, and doing everything you would assume people do on a beautiful day in the mountains. We were both thirsty and ready for a cold drink. That was not to be found. For some strange reason, Europeans think it's unhealthy to drink cold drinks, no matter how hot it is. Ask for anything with ice in it, and they look at you like a total mad person. We had to settle for tepid glasses of water and lukewarm beer. Cindy became friendly with the son of the woman who ran our storybook hotel. I don't remember his name, so let's call him Hansel. He was probably somewhere between 16 to 18, and I found him a little creepy. Now, Cindy had left Jersey 10 years ago for the more mellow, laid-back Portland, Oregon. Her Jersey radar just wasn't up to par anymore. I, on the other hand, had my Jersey dar, Brooklyn dar, and Manhattan dar working at full force, and it was going beep, 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 beep. The second night at the hotel, Cindy said that Hansel was going to drive us to a great little place to eat just outside of town. It sounded okay. I mean, it's always great to have local people invite you to places where you're traveling when you're traveling. Gives it that personal, hey, I'm hanging out with the locals where locals go touch. The little storybook restaurant was one of those dreams, finds of travel, lovely setting, everyone eating outside, a warm summer night. I relaxed and ordered the fresh trout, which I was sure someone had pulled flapping from the stream just a few hours ago. Everything perfect, everything a tourist dream. And we started eating. Hansel announced to us in a very nonchalant voice that he liked to kill American women. I sat there, fork. <laughs> fork in mouth, not really thinking he was saying what he was saying. I said, what? He calmly repeated that he liked to kill American women. Cindy tried to change the subject. <laughs> Do you have any hobbies like carpentry or something? Can you use a hammer? I like to kill people with a hammer. I knew this, was, this trout was my last meal. I stared at Cindy. I stared at Hansel. I stared at everybody in the restaurant, wondering whether to shout murder. Cindy kept trying to act like it was all a sick joke. When we finished our last meal, Hansel got into a Swiss-German argument with the uh, waiter. I have no idea what it was about. I turned to Cindy and said, this is our chance to make a break for it. There was no way we were getting back in the car with him. I think he just has a weird sense of humor. I don't care. There is no fucking way I'm going back in the car with him. Well, how are we going to get back to the inn, she said. I don't know. We'll try to get a ride from someone. Next thing I know, he's driven up the car and she gets in. I had no choice. I couldn't let her be murdered alone. Maybe with two of us, we could get the better of him. So I got into the car of doom, and sure enough, he takes off in the wrong direction away from town and toward the mountains. 
I'm just staring at the road, thinking this couldn't be happening. Suddenly, a few hundred yards from the restaurant, he quickly turns the car around and starts driving full force toward everyone sitting outside the storybook restaurant. Oh, my God, this is it. At the very last minute, he turns the car away with a screeching sound and heads back into town. I guess it was his way of tipping the waiter. We get back to the storybook hotel. Hansel says something to his mother, and they both laugh in a sinister manner. We're getting out of here. They're both in on it. They're going to kill us and bury us up in the glacier, and 10,000 years from now, we'll melt out, and they'll know what primitive people from the 1980s looked like. Cindy wouldn't go. I could not persuade her to leave. It's late. It'll be hard to find a new place to stay. And so loyal schmuck that I am, I went back to the room with her. Cindy was my oldest and best friend. Somebody had a protector. The bathroom was in the hall, so I wouldn't let her go out to use unless she brandished her Swiss Army knife. We had both bought personalized Swiss Army knives the minute we got into Switzerland. After all, I'm not sure what else you buy in Switzerland. I held my Swiss Army knife up like a Swiss blade when I went to use the bathroom. Then we pushed all the furniture up against the floor door and went to bed. At least Cindy went to bed. I just sat staring at the ceiling all night, listening for the sound of the door being broken down. When Cindy got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, I wouldn't let her go, so she peed in a cup. Finally, morning, I'm packed in two seconds and ready to flee for my life. What about breakfast? We get breakfast with our room. Screw breakfast. We're getting the hell out of here. Next thing I know, she calmly goes and sits down for breakfast in the dining room. Now I'm ready to murder her. Again, friendship wins out, so I follow her into the dining room, and of course, who is serving breakfast? Hansel. They're going to poison the food. Let's get out of here. She storm calmly starts to eat. I just stared at my food and stared at her, wondering how long it would take for the poison to kick in. I finally get her out of there and onto the next train to Salzburg, Austria. Since then, I don't trust the Swiss. I don't trust their storybook houses. I don't trust their squeaky clean everything. I don't trust that they have glaciers everywhere, yet they can't put ice in your drink. And I don't trust their beautiful green valleys, and I don't trust their high, magnificent, snow-covered, yodel-friendly mountains. I just know they're up to something. Thank you, Jill. <laughs> um, our next reader uh, is Mario Gonzalez. Mario is going to be reading Need. It's a story of um, a couple, and uh, they're a plan. They're uh, they're addicted to drugs, and uh, they're addicted to pills, particularly. And this is the story of their plan to get some drugs. And so we sort of come in in the middle of it. With our time handicapped, Ray is forced to strategize. Under a cloud of Bali high cigarette smoke, Ray grabs hold of an idea, a quite simple one, really. I should submerge my hand in ice, and as things go numb, jam my fingers between a door and its frame, thereby fracturing bone into loose and jumbled bits. This, he explains, is the quickest way to the emergency room and prescribe painkillers. In spite of our growing desperation, I object. 
wait a minute, Ray, listen, think this through. Let's instead steal from a pharmacy, from our families. Let's sneak into a senior center with sharpened sticks and violence in our voice. Let's break into a vet's office and take horse tranquilizers, ginger-flavored rhino horn, cobra anti-venom from Sri Lankan tea plantations. Let's raid a cemetery, exhume the bones of the dispossessed, and crush them into fine powders, mainlining their marrow. I say this because although desperate, I'm not crazy. I understand then, I'm quite clear about and almost certain that it will fucking hurt. Hurt more, perhaps, than, than my ongoing need. Ray sees the humor in this and even manages a small laugh. But seriously, he says, seen beyond my bullshit. Something new is required. A sacrifice, baby, a sacrifice. On this one, he relies on instinct, his gut, as he calls it. The gut is a wise thing, an authority on most subjects, but evidently schooled in pain. Still, in this case, it will take more than a consultation with his midsection to bring me to harm. Ray knows this and proceeds with the slippery tone of a televangelist to murmur for our love. This is absolutely unfair as it makes self-mutilation seem wholesome, like an act that will purify me and my brackish soul. I fail to ask myself the most obvious of questions. When did our love turn so demented? And even more to the point, why me? You have fucking hands too, Ray. And I know I must think clearly, must be reasonable. Sadly, at this point, my mind resembles a wide-spanning canyon where thoughts just echo, bouncing wildly against thick, bony walls. Among these echoes, one stands out. This will not happen because we will not go that far. Although Ray holds my hand, concentrating on the valley of of my palm, outlining the thin and thickening lines crisscrossing its landscape, although his lips reach my fingers, delivering the gentle warmth of a childhood dream, although he kisses my skin, erasing the ten years between us, although I cry yes in a way that tells me, the internal me which is disengaging but still bothers to make an appearance now and then, that ultimately we will not go that, go that far. We do. We do go that far and further since it does happen, and it's no longer an idea spun by one um, two people, each in need of chemical right now, this very fucking second, until, of course, demand for another hit strikes, which will come very soon, too soon, in fact. But who gives a shit about that? We need now, and now is a time where need resides. So action is vital, and Ray has the plan and the balls to make it happen, and I am just there. I have the body with hands made of bones that break, given enough applied force. More importantly, I have the will to say yes, or the lack of will to say no. Either way, it happens. In which case I know, or have convinced myself because I must, that there's a a greater good, a common goal that I and my lover share. And anyway, tell me, where would I be without Ray or my need for him, his attention, his concern, his need for me? Where would I be? Ray grabs the door handle. As Ray grabs grabs the door handle, something lodged in my proto-brain freaks. Run now, remove yourself from harm, it howls. And I begin to back away, saying, no, Ray, please, no. But he, too, is working primordial. Calm the fuck down, bitch. And his version is more primitive, more ongoing, more resourceful, fixed lower on the evolutionary scale of fear and aggression. Having anticipated my last-minute hesitation, he easily overcomes any of my nonsense by pushing me to the floor and placing his weight against mine. In this position, he slams the door once, twice, three times. That should be enough, he thinks, since he stops there. Ray says nothing. He doesn't have to, because action was needed and words are a poor substitute. They are simply unfit for our mission, creating a future where we're high together, the best kind of high, the only high there is or should be. 
They break. Some minor bones do. I'm guessing because I can hear nothing over my screams or something screams and it sounds like me. But since my descent is nearing rock bottom, I hardly notice and yet fully realize my memory owns this moment. And without a doubt, once my hand is sandwiched between the door and its frame, pain is there. It's in my body, of course. It's lived there for ages, long before Ray came on the scene. What I mean to say is that it's in the room, too. It's in the overstuffed couch that absorbs the urgency of my scream. It's in the picture hanging from the wall, the one that represents art as a bowl of waxy and edible fruit. And it's in the burnt linoleum floor that has borne the weight of babies' knees, seniors in their wheelchairs, cat's paws, men's boots, women's heels, and even lovers in their beds, the rhythm of their past fighting, past fucking fucking pressed deeply against the floorboards. Now the floor, the walls, the furniture, the whole room bears the unbearable weight of me and my need. And our next reader is going to be Ken McPherson. And Ken, you're going to be reading What You Make of It. It's called What You Make of It, but... um I'm also looking at other titles like No One Dies in This Story or This Is Not a Memoir. Principal Stucker looked at Mama with a silly smile on his tight face, like they both knew he was in charge. He had his head slightly tilted back. You could drive a truck up his nose. Mrs. Lever, the principal said, I appreciate you taking the time to share our concern over your son's grades. I wish all the parents would get involved, and I thank you for coming in to address your son's recent behavior. But is it wise to pull your son out of school just because he doesn't like his teacher? Mama sat on the stained chair in the principal's office wearing flowing silk pants and blouse. It isn't just because he doesn't like his teacher, she said, copying Principal Stucker's smile and his tone. I don't like his teacher. I don't appreciate her telling my son that imagination and fantasy are worthless. I don't appreciate her giving him an F on his definition quiz. But, Principal Stucker said, he didn't put down the correct definition for any of the words on that test. Instead, he put silly definitions to cover up his not knowing. A good example of what I'm talking about, Mama replied. Did you read any of his definitions? I'm sure you didn't. You're a busy man. I'm telling you, each definition was creative and full of imagination. That teacher gave him no credit for his imagination. This time I smiled. I looked up at Principal Stucker to see how he could possibly dispute Mama's point. But his nostrils flared and his nose turned red. We leaned forward in his, he leaned forward in his chair, leaving behind his smile. We are not in the business of inappropriately rewarding imagination for 8th graders. We are running this school to educate your son and the other students about the realities of this world. If they don't know English history or math when they leave here, we haven't done our job. If they pass all their courses but can't see fairies, we send them on to the 8th grade. The world they have to work in doesn't care about their imagination. We don't really we don't really care about their imagination. We want them to know what they need to know to get by in this world. Perhaps, said Mama, rising to her feet and pulling me up with her, we will have to find a different world then. We walked out of the school, and that was the last time I sat in a public school classroom. Well, that's the way I wish it had all gone. The truth is, Mama was mad as hell at me. (laughs) 
because she had to come down to the school. She dragged me home in a fuming silence and grounded me for two weeks for swearing at the teacher who gave me the F on the test. It was these two weeks that got me into real trouble. Thank you, Chris. And um, one more reader, that's me. Uh, piece I'm going to be reading is really kind of microfiction. Uh, it's called The Weight. She sits on the hard, slatted bench of the station platform and draws her coat close against the wind. Another train has disgorged its passengers, belching clouds of steam, its wheels screech into forward motion. Then silence. The 719 has arrived and gone. Empty tracks stretch in both directions. How many nights has she sat on the same bench holding tales of the children, like surprises in a sack waiting to be opened? Some night she steals time from her vigil to finish a chapter of a story she cannot put down. Sometimes she plays a game. Maybe this night he'll not get off the train. What if? What would she do? Every night he steps off the train and walks towards her. In his embrace, she breathes in his spicy scent. She remembers a dark winter night, icy snow, icy wind, snow-covered platform. He brushes off a snowflake on her cheek. His lips warm her skin. Spring evening, the smell of lilac almost too much to bear. He picks her up and whirls around, scattering the crush of tired commuters. In summer heat, heavy and close, her thin dress clings to the bench as she rises to meet him. They are both wet and laugh at the stickiness of love. Now autumn winds change everything. The 733 arrives and he descends. His hat pulled down against the wind covers his eyes. On his shirt, there's a faint mix of cologne and sex that is not hers. She pushes the smell out of her nose, but it slips down her throat and chokes her. Pulling back, she feels the wind carry her off the platform. Well, let's have a hand for all our readers tonight. <laughs> five minutes more, only five minutes more. Let me stay, let me stay. 